Hi, this is David Yaz of the Boston Podcast Network. We hope you are staying safe, sound, and sane as this year continues to drag on, and we do all that we have to do to get through this pandemic. Well, how about this? If you want to be on a Zoom call that isn't dreadfully boring, please join us for Zoomapalooza, an interactive adventure of fun, games, comedy, and who knows what else. Tickets are absolutely free, or hire us for your next office or corporate event. Just visit pod617.com slash Zoom. That's pod617.com slash Zoom. Now enjoy the following production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. Are you ready? From the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's the Boston Podcast with David Yaz and a rotating cast of characters from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. This is our Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all the ships at sea, lovers, muggers, and thieves. Welcome to the Boston Podcast. My name is Dave. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. It is the show where we hear the voices of our city telling the tales of our city. And, by the way, if you want your own podcast, go to pod617.com. It's what we do. We produce podcasts at the Boston Podcast Network. Well, I have uh, an old, fr- old friend. He's not that old. He's, if he's old, then I'm old. I guess maybe we're both old. But <laughs> it's attorney Thomas Bean, who is uh, an attorney over at the law firm of Verrill, which I guess used to be uh, Verrill Dana, and now it's just Verrill. Anyway, welcome to the show, Tom. I'm glad you're here. Thank you, David. Good to be here. So... Throughout the years, I've talked to Tom about various things, and in recent years, he's enlightened me on the subject of ballot initiatives, and we all know what those are. It's when, you know, every two years, typically, the year you go in and you vote, and sometimes it's a big election, sometimes it's small, but there are always those questions, and you usually have to educate yourselves on that. This is the guy to talk about it, because Tom has represented people on many ballot initiatives, so hoping certain things pass, and... Tom wanted to come on today, and I welcomed him in a heartbeat to talk about it because the process is probably not what you think. So, first of all, Tom, how has your pandemic been? You hanging in there? I'm hanging in there. It's this is not a lot of fun, David. My social life is virtually non-existent. Yeah, it's this is the social life right here, right? That's right. Yeah, I get to zoom with people and see my friends and talk to family. Yeah, and it's it is depressing. Let's call a spade, especially in the winter where you just, it hits you all of a sudden, there's not a heck of a lot to look forward to. I mean, the holidays were weird this year and and not as much fun as they usually are, but at least it was something on the calendar. (laughs) Now it's like. One of the things I've actually enjoyed is, you know, historically people have said, how you doing? How's your day? How's your week? And you'd get a routine, fine. Everything's great. And now I'm finding when I ask that routine question, how are you doing? I get a, I'm hanging in there. I'm doing my best. So yeah. if anything, I think this is a misery loves company and we're all doing the best we can. I think that's true. I think people are being a little bit more honest about that question because in the past, you know, you had to pr- at least pretend that everything was cool and, you know, people posting pictures online was always life is perfect. And now you're right. It is a shared experience, if nothing else. So, so, so tell us the ballot initiative process. As I said, not necessarily what people think. And tell me what people don't know about it. Well, what people probably don't know is just how hard it is to get a, a matter on the ballot, a proposed law. 
back in 1918, 1919, Massachusetts had a constitutional convention. And there were some legislators who wanted to give the public the access to the ballot, the right to propose a law. And then there were many legislators who said, no, the public's not up to that. We don't want to allow them to do that. And so what ultimately was adopted was an amendment to the state constitution that allows the public to propose laws and be on the ballot, but with many hurdles along the way Mm. that make it difficult to get a law actually approved. So I remember back to my constitute no local government law or constitutional law days it was definitely some class in law school where the i remember hearing what the the boundaries were for as you're describing and a lot and that there were certain things appropriate for ballot questions and certain that weren't and i remember my professor saying if you're going to go in and vote (coughs) excuse me vote with your dark urges then it's probably not a question for ballot. So anything involving race, in other words, even though we hope people aren't racist, we don't want to even give them an opportunity because once they close the, you know, the, through the privacy of the voting booth, they're allowed to exercise those prejudices and stuff. And also things like, you know, I suppose you can't do one saying, let's get rid of all taxes, you know, because that might be good for you, the person in the booth, but it certainly wouldn't be good for society. So am I warm there on, on the types of things that might be in and out? You are warm on that. There are things that are definitely excluded matters. So, for example, as you said, you cannot propose a law that would, appropri- that would take away the legislature's authority to appropriate tax revenues. Mm-hmm. Okay? You can't do that. And there are several other categories that, yes, you cannot pr- make changes to the state constitution to propose changes. Sure. So... When does this process begin? And if I wanted to propose a law to declare Boston cream the official donut of Massachusetts, you know what? That's probably already been done. But anyway, where, where would you where do you start, and how how burdensome a process is it? Okay, two parts. There's the informal. There's the formal process, which starts on the first Wednesday in August, which is when a proposed the deadline for submitting proposed laws to the attorney general for review and certification. But the informal process starts now. When people who want to propose a law will work with an attorney experienced in the area and run that to draft a law that says what they want. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be a law. It can't just be a good idea. It needs to be a proposed law. And so the person, the group person or group would, would work with an attorney It would then be submitted informally to the attorney general's office to get feedback. Is this the kind of thing that is can be certified by the attorney general as appropriate for the ballot? Because the attorney general's role in August of odd numbered years like 2021 is to take all the proposed laws that are certified and determine whether or not those laws comply with the ballot initiative process. In other words, it, does this ballot initiative cover an excluded matter? Is it something, is it a proposed law? Is it something that people can vote on? And the attorney general will decide yay or nay on that by the first Wednesday in September. But then things move very fast. And just to give you an idea, there were 16, I think 16 laws proposed in 2018 to be on the 20, 2019 to be on the 2020 ballot. Mm-hmm. And of those 16, the attorney general certified 13 of them. Okay. 
But then of those 13, start once you're certified, then you have to get signatures. And I'm sure we've all been around where people in at supermarkets and town dumps or wherever are collecting signatures. You need to collect signatures equal to 3% of the ballots cast in the last gubernatorial election. That would seem to be a huge number, right? It is. It's it's over 85,000 signatures that need to be collected between certification in September and a deadline in December. Do you know how that compares to signatures you have to get if you're running for I guess it, it differs depending upon the position. I, I ran for moderate, town moderator of the town of Sharon and served two terms. I ran unopposed each time, but I still have to get the signatures. And I think I only had to get like 100. But is it like a different number for each officer? It, it is a different off, yeah. number for each office. For senator, uh, you need, and it's many fewer than 85,000. Okay. I'll tell you that. I okay. don't remember the precise number for senator. But more for Senator than for the House of Representatives. And I think to run for state legislator, you only need 500 signatures. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so yes, so this, for a, this for a number ballot, is yeah. 80 some thousand. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that requires, so it needs to be done by some kind of organization. It's not that, that, that is, I suppose. Now, is that too much or is, do, do we need that to filter out, you know, some of the people who just don't have their act together? Now, it's already been proposed, uh, satisfied that it passes muster by the AG, right? So anyway, so uh, by the way, Tom, you'll be happy to know that the uh, we we don't need to go through the process. For my idea, the Boston Cream Donut was designated the official donut of Massachusetts in 2003. you had a good idea, David. Somebody just beat you to it. (laughs) That's right. So you get if you get the signatures, then that get that does get it on the ballot. No. (laughs) Oh, okay. So what happens next? All right. So that's step one. Yep. You've gotten step two, actually. You've gotten your signatures. And then all during this process in the fall, you if you've been denied certification or if someone wants to challenge your certification, can challenge it at the Supreme Judicial Court. In other words, the attorney general makes the initial decision, but that's subject to review by the Supreme Judicial Court. Hmm. Let's assume that your proposed law either is not, the AG certifies it and no one challenges the certification. Mm -hmm. So you're moving forward. Mm -hmm. Now, just to give you an idea though, I think I said to you a few minutes ago, 13 laws were certified in 2019 by the attorney general. Four of them collected the first round of signatures. Oh, wow. Mm Four of the 13. Then between, then the proposed laws transmitted to the legislature. And the legislature can adopt the proposed law or not, or take no action. And in most cases, the legislature in the last 10 years has taken no action. So then in May, between May, the first Wednesday in May and June, you have to collect another one half of 1% of the number of signatures of people who voted in the last gubernatorial election, none of whom signed the petition in the first round. That's going to pose a huge headache to the poor person who went out to the star market and tries to remember who signed it first and who did (laughs) it. Well, this is what organizations have to do. And so while I said to you, you need to get signatures certified, it's about 85, 87,000. Most groups will collect and submit 120,000 because maybe not all the signatures will be certified by the town clerks. Mm -hmm. And so these signatures get certified in the town clerk office in 300 and 
51 cities and towns across mm -hmm. Massachusetts. So not only do you have to collect the signatures, but then you have to get them delivered to the individual town clerks who will check the signatures. So we went through the initial signature collection process. Matter goes to the legislature. If the legislature takes no action, then you've got to collect another. This year it was about 13,700 signatures during the pandemic. And then your matter, then there are a couple of other steps whereby you submit a statement to the Secretary of State and the Attorney General, uh, a proposed yes, no statement. In other words, when you go to the ballot, you may remember that when you look at a proposed initiative, it says, if this law passes, here's what happens. Right. And so then, and only then, after you've gotten two rounds of signatures certified, can your law go on the ballot. And last year, granted it was a particularly difficult year because of the pandemic, as I said to you, four proposed initiatives got the first round of signatures. Only two got the second round of signatures. Mm -hmm. And that's why when people went to the ballot box last November, there were two matters, right to repair and ranked choice voting that were on the ballot. Right. And did right to repair, did that pass? I think it did, right? It did with yep. about 74% of the vote, I believe. Okay. And, and then, now that's being challenged by the auto industry in federal court. And since you mentioned it, we'll, we'll I want to go just slightly deeper on this. The ranked choice voting question on the ballot. Now, I know that that failed. It was pretty close, but it failed. I had uh, attorney Jim Henderson on the show last year to kind of explain what ranked choice voting. And I think it's fascinating. I, I think it's great. For those that don't know, I'll give my explanation, then Tom can tell me where I'm wrong. But if you had voted for that, what you were voting for was the opportunity to rank candidates for whatever office is you're voting for. In other words, you just don't vote for one person. You rank them right down the line. And then what happens after that is all the votes are tallied up and say there are four candidates in the race. You just look at the first choice for everybody on round one. And then the whoever's in fourth drops off. But anybody who voted for that fourth person, they obviously put down someone for number two, three, four. Then it, those votes get shifted with full force. In other words, if, the, if, that, if a person voted for number four, who's now been declared a loser, sorry, number four, those, whoever you voted for number two gets, one, gets your vote and a full vote. And so to me, it's terrific because it, it allows a much more nuanced approach. It allows, to me, one of the, one of the ancillary benefits would be it, it might actually instill some civility in campaigning because... You, even if you know you're not the, a voter's number one choice, you want to make sure that you're their number two choice. And so you don't want to polarize people and insult them. Jeez, if we could ever use it, it would have been now. Did I, I kind of jumped around a little bit there, Tom, but maybe help me fill in the blanks there as to what that was about. No, David, you did a great job yeah. explaining it. And so I think two of at least two of the benefits of ranked choice voting are just what you said. First, people get to put it, it promotes more civilized behavior in campaigning. Because a candidate may say to a, a voter may say to a candidate, you're not my first choice. And the candidate may say, well, can I be your second choice? Yeah. And it forces that candidate to look to broaden the candidate's appeal. What it does is it makes it harder for a candidate to win when they have a small but solid voting block. Mm -hmm. Just to give you an idea, 
In the fourth congressional district last fall, there were, I don't know, eight to 10 candidates running. The person who won got about 21, 22% of the vote. Mm. That means almost 80% of the people did not vote for this right. candidate. Right. Not necessarily popular. This, yeah. <laughs> right. With, you know, so this person won. And I, I, mm. I think it would have been much better. I, I, nothing about this particular candidate. But it, I think it would have been better if people could have had the opportunity to rank their choices. Mm -hmm. And that way your vote count, your ballot will count. You, you, you know, first up, first, I mean, you might have to go down to your third choice, but you, every, your vote counts towards one of the candidates that you put down there. Yeah. And it means that the candidate who wins got majority support. Right. As opposed to support from 22 percent of the right. voters. One of the other things I like to happen to like about ranked choice voting is that it lets people vote their conscience. In other words, suppose you are a supporter of a green candidate or a libertarian candidate, mm -hmm. neither of which has a great likelihood of winning the election. But you, you don't want to have to be in the position of saying, gosh, do I vote my conscience or do I throw away my vote in the sense that I'm going to vote for someone who can't win? With ranked choice voting, you could do both. You could vote your conscience and put the green or the libertarian candidate first, and then put the Democrat or the Republican, whoever you preferred, second. And that way you got to vote your conscience and express your view, even if it's a minority view. Yeah, you could. this might be a simplified example, and I don't know if it's, it completely holds water, but in the presidential election, I'm going to forget the year, but it was... Uh, Bush and Clinton and Ross Perot ran as a third party candidate. Now, the theory after the election, which Clinton won, you know, unseating an incumbent president, was that Perot had pulled a lot of votes away from the what Bush. And so you had, you know, Perot was an independent in name, but, you know, he was a businessman. And so most, you know, conservative, you think if you stereotype, conservatives are going to gravitate towards him. With rank, with rank choice voting, you would presume that most people who had Bush first would might have Perot second and vice versa. So Clinton certainly could have lost. And, you know, to me, that's and that would have been just because, you know, I mean, because half, you know, I'm oversimplifying, but it's quite possible that a majority of the country didn't want to see Bill Clinton as president. You know, he left all the way to the White House. But at any rate, so that did not pass. Do you think people actually understood what they were voting for? I think that's a wonderful question, yeah. David. And frankly, I think there were people who didn't understand it who voted no, which I think is a natural tendency. If I don't understand yep. something, do I want change? No, I don't want change. And I think one of the challenges the campaign, which while very well done, had was communicating with people during the pandemic. Right. You, you couldn't have the usual house parties. You couldn't talk to people at the supermarket or the town dump. Those conversations just couldn't happen during a pandemic. So I think it was hard. And a lot of people, that's why in Article 48, the ballot initiative process, it requires that for a law to pass, it must get a majority of yes votes. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can't frame your question so that people vote no. Mm. You have to vote your question, phrase the question so that if people vote yes, the law passes because right. the drafters knew it's harder, harder to get people to vote yes than it is to vote no. Right. Because no just means, and if you look at the yes, no statements printed on the ballot, it says a no vote means there will be 
no change in the way we elect people in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Well, that's appealing to a lot of people. Now, you're telling me before we started recording that this process begins early and there's there there are there's a dynamic going on right now that that apropos to the next cycle. So explain that to me, please. Sure. It's February in a few days. Mm -hmm. And if you depending on what your proposed law is, you should be working with an attorney to draft that proposed law and draft it in a way that it will comply, get certified by the attorney general's office. And what that will take some period of time to draft the law. And once it's been drafted, it's advisable. And the attorney general does this willingly and helpfully. We'll review the proposed law and say, here are the issues, some of the issues that we see, if there are issues that relate to certification. And that way it gives you a heads up and the opportunity to make modifications that could address the attorney general's concerns. And loaded question, but you're a good person to consult on this. You've handled many of these cases before, many of these efforts before, I should say, you've represented them. Is there one that sticks out as memorable in your mind that you've handled in the past that is sort of you're most proud of, perhaps? Well, the first one I did was the one seeking to repeal casino gambling mm-hmm. in 2014. And shall we say the industry outspent that group <laughs> 14 million to 400,000. Yeah, well, who's laughing now that casino over on the water in Boston is empty? So, <laughs> well, that's a problem. I mean, one of the things about casinos is more casinos leads to cannibalization of the casino dollar, mm. meaning there are only so many people who are going to go gamble and spend so much money. And the more casinos there are in New England, the more they hurt each other economically. And obviously during the pandemic, people are not going to casinos. So yeah, that one fell short and now you've handled this one. But if people want to get in touch with you, can I send them to your website, Tom? Would that be appropriate? That would be just fine. So it's veril-law.com and veril with two R's, two L's, veril-law.com. And you'll find all uh, Tom's bio and all the stuff there. And get in touch with him if you're slightly interested in this topic. Or if you just want to network with someone who is a very interesting guy. Tom Bean, I always enjoy the time spent with you. Have we left out anything on this that our listeners should know about? Just that it's an exciting process and it's a challenging process because Mm -hmm. it is not easy. As I said, you know, in some states have no process for getting a proposed law for the people to propose a law to put on the ballot. Mm -hmm. And some states have what I would call unduly burdensome proposals, processes where you need hundreds of thousands of signatures to get the proposed law on the ballot. Mm -hmm. Massachusetts is probably somewhere in the middle. It's challenging and it's a lot of work, takes time and money, but it is doable and it's very satisfying if you're successful. For sure. And and just the, the amount of sort of power that lies in that ballot to create a law statewide. You know, I saw it on a a micro level when I was the, I mentioned the moderator of the town of Sharon and it was, you know, the small town politics at its finest. And it was just interesting to me that some people who were very passionate about certain things would be frustrated because maybe not a lot of people would turned out that night to vote for the ordinance on whether or not you're allowed to bring your dog to the beach or whether or not the town is going to sell hard alcohol, which continues to get voted down in the town of Sharon because we think we're a quaint little town. Anyway, so it's, it is an exciting part of the process. And, and to, I imagine that when you see that question on the ballot, it must be quite a thing because to create something going forward that's so permanent and meaningful. 
Any- it, it, it's very exciting. Yeah. And as I think most people know, they, the decriminalization of marijuana and the recreation, both sure. the medicinal marijuana and the recreational marijuana we laws we now have are the result of ballot initiatives. Right. So congratulations. Well, funny, Dave, yeah. uh, just to go on yeah. your local example, probably 25 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, my son and I collected signatures in the town of Needham. We needed 150 signatures to ban cigarette vending machines in town. Mm. And why did we do that? Because when I was a kid and I wanted to, I was, you know, going to buy some cigarettes to Mm. see what this was all about. (laughs) No one would sell them to me, but I could go to a vending machine Mm. and I could buy cigarettes. And we were successful in getting vending machines banned from the cigarette vending machines banned from the town of Needham. That was exciting. Yeah. And good on, good on you. And it's it, that, that, I mean, talk about something that you see the results of right away. You know, they had to That's take, right. they had to, they had to take them out. It's funny. They, they don't exist anymore, right? It, it, there must've been at some point a ban on them nationwide. The, the only, I, I'm not a smoker myself, but the only thing I liked about those machines is when you pulled, I mean, the candy bar machines were the same. You used to pull the lever out right. and there would be the satisfying noise when it would fall down. Oh God. Yeah. No, I'm not a smoker either, but when I was 13, it was a way to try it out, sure. to experiment, and uh, yeah. didn't want to incur- make it easier for kids to be able to do that. No doubt. We, we're up against the clock a little bit, but we are going to play a quick round of good stuff where both Tom and I will recommend something good. And Tom has had about uh, 22 minutes to prepare for this, so cut him some slack if he's not prepared. But uh, we will do that right after I tell you something about the Boston Podcast Network. It's pod617.com. You go to that website if you're interested in your own podcast. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to get the word out about what they do. It's an important spoke in your marketing wheel and we will produce the show for you start to finish intro music outro music great way to connect with your network your clients your prospective clients they will be delighted to be guests on your show you can do it from the comfort of your own home we'll send you out a quality usb microphone or if you want to you can come to our studios in westwood mass they are open and sanitized and socially distanced and all that but you can produce just as good a quality product from your home go to pod617.com to get started be part of the pod revolution the boston podcast network in pod we trust all right let's play a round of good stuff oh that's the good stuff Tom, do you have something to recommend to our listeners that maybe you have enjoyed during this unprecedented time? I w- enjoyed the Netflix series called Queen's, A Queen's Gambit. Yes. I've seen it's, it myself, but tell, yeah, give us your review. Oh, this young girl becomes an orphan. I don't know. Maybe she's seven, eight years old, ends up in this horrible orphanage. Mm-hmm. But she meets, makes, establishes a friendship with the janitor mm-hmm. who cheat, treat, cheat, whoops, teaches her how to play chess and I'm not going to give it away, but suffice it to say this girl is a prodigy and becomes quite a chess player. It's just a lot of fun. Right. It's a nice kind of easy watch. It's something like eight episodes, which is good. I like my series to be at least eight episodes, but you know, maybe not, you know, 20 episodes. And it's, it's a wonderful story. The, it's also interesting because a couple things, one, it made me want to take up chess. <laughs> I just I think I remember how to play chess, but I haven't played in years. You ever play? Not very well. Yeah, right. But what was fascinating to me was is the people that are depicted in the show who are chess aficionados. And mind you, this is not based on a true story, but I imagine a lot of the 
the chess professional chess players mentioned in the the show are true to life and a lot of their maneuvers are and they could say oh you remember when Rakoslavsky pulled the rook to queen seven in 1962 or something and it was like you and I would say you know you remember you know Tom Brady and the tuck rule and in the snow in you know in 2001 and so that was funny and but then also the show is not just about chess it actually touches on topics of addiction and at some point you begin your to wonder what is this show actually about I know I'm enjoying it but and geez that actor Anya Taylor-Joy is her name she is just hard to take your eyes off of isn't she yeah no she, it was she is mesmerizing and it, it's dark as yeah. you said I didn't want to mention the addiction piece of it but it, it's dark but the chess is just alluring and you know it's fun there are a couple of different scenes where Men are playing chess in the park Mm -hmm. and one's, you know, in different parks in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's just something people do. I mean, I remember people at Harvard Square playing chess by what was then Obal Path. It's a neat way for people to interact. And I'll tell you, people get really serious about their chess, just like you and I might get serious about the Patriots. Yeah, for for sure. Yeah, every product TV show movie about chess has to have a wise old person playing chess in the park and in searching for Bobby Fisher, it was the yep. Lawrence Fishburne character who's like the old Oracle of chess. Anyway, that, that is a great one. I'm glad you liked it. I enjoyed it too. I, I will bring up a, a documentary that I, I confess I'm only halfway through, but it's about Muhammad Ali. And I thought I knew everything I needed to know about Muhammad Ali. There've been numerous documentaries made about him. This one has actually opened my eyes to sort of a different side of him. And let's take a look. Well, Tom and I will take a look, and you'll listen at home to a little bit of the trailer for The Trials of Muhammad Ali. The enemy wanted him to come out all blasted. But my lord myself said no, no. Cassius, I'm Cassius, the real God. Cassius, wait a minute, wait a minute, Cassius. Hold you it. must listen to me. Ali was exemplifying a freedom that most black people did not enjoy. We could not foresee the difficulties that would lie ahead as far as military service and, of course, the Muslim affiliation. You won't fight for your country. You refuse to go into the... uh... I'm a minister of my religion. This country has laws for ministers. Mr. Muhammad Ali has just refused to be inducted into the United States Armed Forces. It took an all-white jury less than a half hour to find Muhammad Ali guilty of all charges and specifications. I find nothing interesting or tolerable about this man. He's a disgrace to his country, his race, and what he laughingly describes as his profession. So I'll cut it off there, but I think the that last clip you heard was from David Susskind, who was, I'm old enough to remember that he was just kind of a respected newsman, right, TV host of sorts, and that was only a bit of him going after Muhammad Ali and just calling him a disgrace, a discredit to his race. There are different interviews with the likes of David Frost and others where not only are the hosts really denigrating of Ali, but Ali fires back in very angry form and saying things that kind of make you feel uncomfortable, like the white man is the devil. And David Frost says, well, you don't believe I'm the devil. And he says, what did I just say? 
I believe the teachings of Elijah Muhammad, and you're not going to get me to change my mind, and the white man of the devil, and there's black and white, and there's good and bad, and all this, I'm doing a horrible Muhammad Ali imitation, but- You are. Uh, yeah, but thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> but it, it just, it occurred to me, a lot of these documentaries, you, you know, he was a fascinating character. He, you know- famously modeled his cadence and his showmanship after the wrestler gorgeous george and that aspect of muhammad ali is well documented and he's just a fun character and but most of the documentaries i've seen prior to this one cast him in just kind of a glamorous light and how much fun he was and the show that followed him and the boxing we know about the boxing you know he and his various comebacks and having to get in shape after being banned for a while and then the kind of the sad ending but do you, how do you remember him, Tom? Because you and I are roughly the same vintage, uh, so you, you've seen him. You, David, yeah. David, Muhammad Ali was the greatest. Yeah. You know, I grew up watching his boxing matches. I was mesmerized. I was mesmerized by this man who was willing to sacrifice what would have been three of the prime years of his career for something he believed in. Mm-hmm. And while people can agree or disagree with whether what he believed in was appropriate, the point was he was someone who was willing to make sacrifices for what he believed in. And paid the price dearly. There's... He paid the price dearly. Yeah. He could not fight from 67 to 70. You know, one of the great stories, I don't know if you remember the book, The Brethren. I don't, but go ahead. It was one of the first books about the internal workings of the U.S. Supreme Court. And as you may recall, Ali appealed his case all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And what the Brethren says is that after the initial vote of the, of the oral argument, the justices were ready to affirm conviction of Ali and rule against him. And it turned, according to the book, one of the judge's law clerks was reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm. And before you know it, this autobiography gets passed around the judge's chambers. Mm from one judge to the next, and they're learning about, I'm forgetting the precise name of the church, it's not the Islam we know today, or that's been around for thousands and thousands of years, but the point is, yeah. ultimately, the justices ruled in favor of Ali, 8-0, and vacated his conviction. I didn't remember that part of the story, and maybe it's towards the end of this documentary, but so what was it in the Malcolm X Treatise. I, I think what it did was legitimize this nation of Islam. That was the name of the organization. Yeah, nation of Islam, right. It, it, it lent legitimacy to the nation of Islam. And again, obviously, I don't know what happened. I don't even know if what the Brethren says is accurate, but the story is it changed justices' minds mm -hmm. and it caused the court to respect Ali's, what he said were his religious beliefs. Right. And just so many layers to it, you know, he, you know, was, became a, a racial, a racial equality icon for the reasons we've talked about, you know, refusing, but then refusing to go to the draft and has famously saying, you know, I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong and I, you know, I have more quarrel with the white men here that are suppressing my people. It, it is History has when you know when the history was ultimately written. He he really is a, a heroic figure, and I but I think it, it's interesting to look back and realize that it took such a long time to get there. And you know he like you can compare him to Martin Luther King. He was he, they kind of had a lot of similarities. King paid paid a lot dear more dearly for his crusade, but Ali paid as well. And 
I don't think you'll ever find, I don't know if you'll ever have a more transcendent sort of crossover athlete figure that had as much charisma as Ali did. No, I think you're definitely right. Mm -hmm. And when Ali, I remember crying in 1996 when Ali lit the Olympic torch in Mm -hmm. Atlanta. Mm-hmm. He was obviously already affected by Parkinson's at that point, and he struggled. But he went out there, and you're right, he was a transcendent figure. I forget there's some movie about the rumble in the jungle, the bat in Kinshasa Zaire. Yeah. When Ali goes out for a run in the morning before the fight, mm-hmm. and all the kids in the community are running behind him. Yep. He was the the leader, the Pied Piper that people followed. Yeah, and unless I'm mixing it up with a different fight, they were all shouting, Ali, Bumaye, which means Ali, kill him. I think When We Were Kings is the film you're talking about. Yes, you yeah. are right. Yeah. You are right. And that yeah. is, that's one of the, the great ones as well. So, But in th- this one, and I do recommend it, I found it on Amazon Prime. I assume you can find it there as well, people. The Trials of Muhammad Ali just kind of shows an even darker, grittier side of him not necessarily a negative one but sort of a more even more maybe honest look at Ali well we went way over because as Tom and I will do we just like talking about stuff but I hope you enjoyed yourself Tom I did I had a good time David and I could reach up to my bookcase three feet away from me and pull four Ali biographies off the shelf is that right we may have yeah. to do another show completely on Ali you no, you, I'm going to watch, David, I wrote down The Trials of Muhammad Ali on Amazon Prime. I am going to watch it because he is a figure that I was a boy, and I grew up when he was in his prime fighting years, yep. and it, it was became very interesting. It was, it was made for TV because the way Howard Cosell interviewed him and they played off each other was just yep. they both had an appreciation for the moment and the theater. And uh, there's not much of that left these days. But anyway, so you can recount that in that film. And Tom Bean, you can get in touch with him at verolaw.com. Two R's, two L's, and Vero, verol-law.com. And thank you for joining us, Tom. A lot of fun, as usual. Let's see. What do I need to tell you? Subscribe to this podcast if you like it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your shows. And if you want your own podcast, go to pod617.com to get started. My name is Dave, and on behalf of the great Tom Bean, I will say I'm just a guy from Boston. But if you're not from Boston, you must be the other guy. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.